All right, we are back. During the break, Mr. Millen has asked me numerous questions, um, uh, most of which I have no idea how to answer. Such as, if you're asymptomatic but have contracted the virus, for how long are you contagious? These articles I've been reading are sort of skirting that issue. I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that quite yet. Let's go back to that study of the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Well, there's 3,711 people aboard the ship. It was confirmed that 634, or 17%, had the virus. 328 of them did not have any symptoms at the time of the diagnosis. Meaning 306 had symptoms, 328 did not have symptoms. They extrapolated these numbers back to China and estimated that 1.1% of symptomatic cases in China turned deadly, considering that asymptomatic cases outnumber symptomatic cases, it drops the ratio to about 0.5%. There's still some uncertainties in this. They noted that some patients initially counted as asymptomatic might later develop symptoms or even die, so the true fatality rate may be somewhat higher. One question in everybody's mind is, will coronavirus happen every year in the future like the flu? And the short answer to that is, at this point, nobody knows. SARS, that other coronavirus, showed up on the scene some years back and did not become a regular part of our seasonal diseases. But it's noted that SARS disappeared because of very stringent public health control and intervention. And if we're a little uncertain on uh, how long you're, you're infectious, the World Health Organization is saying that, well, it's pointing out the vast majority of people do recover from this disease and that people with mild illnesses recover in about two weeks, though those with more severe illnesses may take three to six weeks to get over it. One of the main problems in dealing with coronavirus here in the United States of America is the issue of testing. I called a friend of mine who runs a medical laboratory to ask what the deal is is on local testing, and she said, well, we have kits as of last Thursday. That's four days ago. Prior to that, if your doctor suspected that you had coronavirus and wanted to test for it, they had to send it back east. I understand that the World Health Organization offered the United States their testing kits, and Donald Trump turned them down. I haven't really fleshed that story out, but the, the notion of the President of the United States committing some missteps in this whole uh, matter, um, well, it seems rather clear that, that he has. Although I was rather shocked when I called my colleague to ask how things were in the clinic, and I made a few disparaging remarks about our fearless leader. His response was, oh, are you going to vote for Sanders or Biden? My answer was, I'll vote for anyone not named Trump, which he then replied, well, God, we're going to have a big fight over Trump. And we both decided not to have that fight, but Donald Trump does warrant some comment at this point. Let's start with the editorial in the LA Times by Doyle McManus. The headline is, Trump says he's learned from the coronavirus, period. Let's hope so. He noted that one place we haven't seen much leadership in the United States was the White House. For weeks, President Trump downplayed the epidemic, promised it would end on its own, and claimed tests were available to anyone who wanted one. They weren't, and they still aren't. He added, it seemed discordant that so many other leaders were grappling with the virus as a growing crisis, only to hear the president insist as late as last Thursday, we're in great shape. It'll go very quickly. McManus notes that presidents don't get a free pass if they fail to notice impending threats. Trump has said nobody knew a coronavirus could reach our shores. It's an unforeseen problem that came out of nowhere, he said, except it wasn't. 
The director of national intelligence delivers an annual briefing on threats to national security. A warning about pandemics, including coronaviruses, has been a part of that every year that Trump has been in office. If you want the federal government to be effective in a crisis, you need to give it the tools to act. You'd think a Republican president from the business world would know bureaucracies can be inefficient and slow-moving. That's why the Obama administration started an office on health security to streamline America's response. But in 2018, Trump's then-National Security Advisor John Bolton abolished the office. When the coronavirus appeared in China in 2019, there was no White House health czar to coordinate a response. Said Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health, rather diplomatically, it would be nice if the office was still there. Last Friday, Trump said he didn't know anything about the office's elimination. Asked whether he bore any responsibility, he answered, that's a nasty question. McManus notes that whether Trump likes it or not, the buck stops with him. For weeks, his main message about coronavirus was the problem was under control. When it became clear his messages weren't true, he blamed others. He said the CDC did nothing meaningful to fix the testing problem. For that problem, he said, for that problem, he said, I don't take responsibility at all. In fact, if we're going to find any comedy in today's program, it's going to have to center on Donald J. Trump. Dan Mangan, writing for CNBC.com, notes that Donald Trump dismissed the coronavirus pandemic worry in January, but now claims he long warned about it. Now, in the wake of that, uh, that, that study from the UK, that epidemiologic modeling at the Imperial College of London from uh, Neil Ferguson got sent to the White House last week, the president was asked by a reporter, was there a shift in tone after that? Trump said, I didn't feel different. Adding, I've always known this is, uh, this is a real, this, this thing's a pandemic. I felt that it was a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic. All you had to do was look at other countries. I think now it's in almost 120 countries all over the world. No, I've always viewed it as serious. There was no difference yesterday from days before. I feel the tone is similar, but people said it wasn't. However, it is a matter of record that during his January 22nd interview on CNBC, Trump claimed the virus was, quote, totally under control, unquote. The co-host of Squawk Box, Joe Kernan, opened the interview by noting that a case of coronavirus had been identified in Washington State by the Center for Disease Control. Karen asked, have you been briefed by the CDC? I have, Trump replied. Karen then asked, are there worries about a pandemic at this point? Said Trump, no, not at all. Adding, and we're, we, we have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China, and we have it under control. It's going to be just fine. On February 28th, Trump said the Democrats are using the coronavirus outbreak as a hoax to damage him and his administration. At a campaign rally in South Carolina, Trump said the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. One of my people came up to me and said, Mr. President, they tried to beat you on Russia. Russia, Russia. That didn't work out too well. They couldn't do it. So they tried the impeachment hoax that was on a perfect conversation. This is their new hoax. Writing in the Washington Post, Carolyn Y. Johnson notes that Donald Trump is breaking every rule in the CDC's 450-page playbook for health crises. The article notes that after disastrous communications during the 2001 anthrax attacks, when white powder and envelopes sparked widespread panic, the CDC created a 450-page manual outlining how U.S. leaders should talk to the public during crises. 
protecting vulnerable people from a virus that, according to some projections, could infect millions and kill hundreds of thousands, depends on U.S. leaders issuing clear public health instructions and the public's trust to follow directions that could save their lives. Joshua Sharfstein, a former top FDA official and Johns Hopkins University professor, is using the CDC manual to teach a crisis communication class, notes, sometimes it seems like they've literally thrown out the book. We're studying what to do and at times what not to do on the same day. Two weeks ago, in this article's dateline St. Patty's Day, Trump said the country would soon have zero cases. This week, there were more than 2,249 deaths. Now, this piece must be several days old. We've, we've now topped 100 here in the United States. When asked during a news conference Friday, and that was last Friday, why he disbanded the White House's pandemic office, Trump denied doing so, saying, I didn't do it. I don't know anything about it. When asked if he bore any responsibility for disastrous delays in testing, Trump said no, blaming instead circumstances and regulations created by others. When asked if Americans should believe Trump or his top health official, Anthony S. Fauci, whom Trump has contradicted repeatedly, Trump sidestepped the question. Carolyn Johnson notes that for three years, the Trump administration has often taken a hostile stance to science and its practitioners, but health crisis experts say it's not too late, and the fruits of their research, like the CDC's 450-page manual, are waiting untapped to serve as a roadmap to help leaders navigate the growing pandemic. Per the CDC manual, the fundamental principles behind good public health communications are almost stunningly simple. Be consistent, be accurate, don't withhold vital information. And above all, don't let anyone onto the podium without the preparation, knowledge, and discipline to deliver vital health messages. Experts say that means not having multiple messengers jockeying for attention with completely different information. It means not overly reassuring people in the face of a threat that's likely to sicken many and kill some. It also means expressing empathy while also delivering information that may be scary. Tell people what they can and should do at an individual level to help those who are at the greatest risk. Michael Palanchar, crisis communications expert at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, said, it's in the nature of leaders sometimes to want to tell everybody we have everything under control. We know overwhelmingly that research suggests that's detrimental to health and safety. Palanchar was one of the more than 180 people who contributed to the CDC manual. They compiled, by the way, a list of pitfalls to avoid, a list that's begun to look a lot like the administration's playbook. Nearly every day since the coronavirus landed in America, the White House has issued mixed and conflicting messages from multiple sources. The first guideline on the manual's list of potentially harmful practices. The CDC manual devotes an entire chapter to choosing the right spokesperson, someone who gives the government and its message a human form. But the government's leading health experts have repeatedly ceded the microphone to politicians, with the nation's top health officials repeatedly canceling news conferences to make room for Vice President Pence or Donald Trump or to avoid upstaging other White House announcements. Last week, instead of holding CDC's news conference focusing on coronavirus, Trump toured the CDC in front of cameras telling the public, anybody right now and yesterday, anybody that needs a test gets a test. And the tests are beautiful. Last Friday's CDC press call was canceled again so that Trump could host his Rose Garden news conference. In recent days, rather than having one voice, the spokesperson role has ping-ponged among Pence, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, Tony Fauci, and Trump. 
Trump, in particular, checks off many attributes the manual specifically warns against. The spokesperson must be, quote, familiar with the subject matter, unquote, and, quote, have the ability to talk about it clearly and with confidence, unquote. Since taking office, Trump has ousted scientists, muzzled researchers, and suppressed basic information on climate change. Public health officials worry that his erosion of public trust of science, coupled with the ongoing conflicting messaging between experts and politicians, and making it unclear whom the public should listen to. Yeah, if, you, if you've listened to any of these uh, press conferences or, or watched them on television, you will note that uh, one of the major features of it is copiously praising Donald Trump for his leadership. Now, again, Donald Trump as president in 2018 disbanded the pandemic response team the government had in place, which prompted businessinsider.com to note that Trump has defended huge cuts to the CDC's budget by saying the government can hire more doctors, quote, when we need them, unquote, during crises. In 2018, Trump defended his huge CDC budget cuts during a press conference, saying, I'm a business person. I don't like having thousands of people around when you don't need them. When we need them, we can get them back very quickly. Now, it's a matter of record that back in 2018, the White House eliminated a position on the National Security Council tasked with coordinating a global pandemic response. The CDC, that same year, also axed 80% of its efforts combating disease outbreaks overseas because its funds were depleted. And wouldn't you know it, in its latest budget proposal, the Trump administration sought to cut CDC funding by 16% even as Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar is seeking emergency spending measures. Last week, Trump defended his budget cuts to the Center for Disease Control at a press conference. He he said that it was easy to bolster the public health agency and cited his business approach toward running the federal government. He said, quote, I'm a business person. I don't like having thousands of people around when you don't need them. When we need them, we can get them back very quickly. The president said some of the experts targeted by the cuts haven't been used for many years and that additional federal money and new medical staffers could be obtained swiftly since, quote, we know all the good people, end quote. CNN noted in a piece from March 16th that serious questions remain on whether Trump's administration, which was slow to recognize the threat, mischaracterized its impact and seemed most concerned about mitigating political damage. Well, the question is whether it's now got its federal act together. Trump flagrantly contradicted Anthony Fauci's warnings at the White House briefing Sunday in which he celebrated the Federal Reserve's decision to cut interest rates to 0% to help the shocked economy. He said, it's a very contagious virus. It's incredible, but it's something we have tremendous control of. Which takes us back to the matter of kits. One of the big criticisms of the administration's effort has been that it failed to make millions of coronavirus testing kits available sufficiently quickly. They said we would have them by the first week in March. We did not. And my medical lab connection assured me that although local kits are now available, there's nowhere near enough of them to test the number of people we need to test. Why the hell did this happen? Well, I don't know, but we're going to try and look into it. There's a story out there that Donald Trump tried to get involved with a German company to produce a test that would only be used in America for mysterious reasons. If you know something about this, by the way, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We welcome your input on that and everything else we've been talking about and everything else we ever talk about. And in the publication known as Nautilus, a Kevin Berger wrote a piece titled The Man Who Saw the Pandemic Coming, which is worth a couple of minutes. 
Starts out noting that Dennis Carroll doesn't mean to sound callous when he says the coronavirus outbreak was predictable, and he doesn't. He sounds sympathetic to people frightened by the outbreak. He's been an eyewitness to people around the world suffering from similar viruses. Most of all, Carroll sounds authoritative. For decades, Dennis Carroll's been a leading voice about the threat of zoonotic spillover, the transmission of pathogens from non-humans to us. Scientists are confident the current outbreak, which began in Wuhan, China, stemmed from a virus inherent in bats. In 2009, after studying infectious diseases at the CDC and the U.S. Agency for International Development, Carroll formed a USAID program called PREDICT, where he guided trailblazing research into viruses hiding and waiting to emerge in animals around the world. For a decade, PREDICT received annual federal funding of 15 to $20 million. In 2019, its funding wasn't renewed. Carroll left USAID and formed a new program, the Global Virome Project, to build on PREDICT's scientific insights and experience, he said. He notes this is a global event. It's going to hit every community everywhere in the world. To the question, how did the current coronavirus pass from bats to humans? Carroll said, we don't know specifically, but presumably the virus was being shed by the animal in the market and humans were proximal. Or it could have been that people were directly handling the animal. There may have been a secondary source. In the 2002 SARS outbreak in China, we didn't see people's direct exposure to bats as a source of infection. There was a secondary source, a wildlife animal, the civet cat. Asked, could the transmission have resulted from people eating the wildlife? Carroll said, typically the preparation of the animal is where you have exposure. By the time it's cooked and prepared, the virus would have been dead. It's more common that transmission is through the animal shedding or people slaughtering it. Asked if bats have a particularly high potential for spillover into humans. He said, certainly, we've been able to identify bats as reservoirs for coronavirus and documented specific bat populations as reservoirs for Ebola. We want to understand how each of these bats operate within an ecosystem. Asked, have there been disturbances in their environment that have brought bats closer to us? The answer was, the disturbances in their environment are us. We've penetrated deeper into ecozones we've not occupied before. It's worth pausing a moment to note that it is the world's ever-growing population that is putting humans out into what had previously been natural areas where few people went that is causing the spillover of animal viruses into the human population. And it's not going to get better as the world population continues to grow in the out-of-control manner in which it has. More on that another day. Asked if spillover events are more common now than 50 years ago, said yes. EcoHealth Alliance, an NGO, and others looked at all reported outbreaks since 1940. They came to a fairly solid conclusion that we're looking at an elevation of spillover events two or three times more than what we saw 40 years earlier. To the question, viruses live on a delicate balance. They have to be able to thrive without killing their host. Carroll said, right, the ones that kill off their host quickly will disappear. With the SARS virus, it's no surprise that killing 10% of its host, it wasn't able to establish itself as a pandemic virus on this planet. As we talked about in the last segment, a lot of people attribute the removal of SARS from the human population due to the efforts that were taken to contain people that were infected. At any rate, to the question, are there any signs that this coronavirus will kill itself? Carroll said, this one has a lower pathogenicity. The lower its virulence, the more likely it'll become part of an endemic part of a seasonal event. That's one of the big things that's going to be a worry. 
If it does go quiet over the summer months, then the question is going to be, is it still infecting people? We could be walking around in the middle of summer with influenza viruses, but they're not active. They've just gone quiet. When the right ecology comes into play, it starts getting cold and damp, then it starts replicating like crazy. If it's able to park itself and not kill its host over the summer months, then we've got a virus that has all the telltale signatures of establishing itself as part of our normal landscape, much to our detriment. It's worth pausing a moment to note that it is true that viruses do better in the parts of the body that are cooler. Your nasal passages are several degrees cooler than the rest of your body, and they seem to replicate better there than viruses that, say, live inside your gut. We had an inquiry in the last week from Don about the possibility of, uh, of using something he saw in a video to combat nasal viruses. I suppose it would work for rhinovirus as well as coronavirus and most other viruses that, again, tend to prefer cooler temperatures. Well, the suggestion from this PhD who put together this video was that what you can do is take a hairdryer and a spray bottle of water Point this toward your nostrils and heat your interior nasal passages up to 133 degrees, at which point the viruses uh, don't like it, tend to self-destruct. While spraying your face with water, of course, so you don't get too hot. And then you pull the, you're supposed to pull the uh, hairdryer away when you're exhaling, because it only works when you're taking air in. Rocky as it sounds, I, in, it's hard to fault the theory. You know, as, as to whether anyone has really truly tested this notion, well, I, I just don't know. The same video claimed that if you take several saunas with very, very hot air, you can, in, in essence, cure yourself uh, of these viruses. Saunas have been around a long time. A lot of people in a lot of cultures think they're wonderful for your health. And uh, I don't know, maybe people in Sweden, people in, in Russian banyas, uh, maybe, maybe they do better with, with the cold and flu season, but they don't really have a profound reputation for doing so, so I, I just don't know. The smartest chemist in the world was probably Linus Pauling, and he firmly believed that if you took a lot of vitamin C, you wouldn't get a common cold. He wrote a best-selling book about it many years ago. And because he was Linus Pauling, everybody thought, well, we got to give this some credibility. This is one smart guy, won two Nobel Prizes, and they don't hand those out to chimps. But, uh, you know, I, I, I caught the wave of that in, in, in medical school. I mean, this is after Linus Pauling had said this, and everybody was like, well, you know, maybe, but test after test, study after study kept coming up with, at best, inconsistent results, and it's, it's now conceded that massive doses of vitamin C are not going to prevent you from getting the common cold, 15% of which are coronaviruses. Anyway, that's something else we welcome input from the public on. If you have a history of, uh, you know, saunas or, or hair dryers up the nose to prevent colds, let us know how that works. Let us know how that's working for you. We need to know. Asked, do you think the current outbreak was inevitable? Carol said, oh, sure, it was predictable. It's like if you had no traffic laws and were consistently finding pedestrians getting whacked by cars as they cross the street. Is that surprising? No. All you need to do is better manage how we set up crosswalks, how we establish traffic rules and regulations. We're not doing that. We're not establishing the kind of safe practices that will minimize the opportunity for spillover. If we better understood where these viruses are circulating and understood that ecology, we'd have a potential to disrupt and minimize the risk of spillover. Asked, why aren't we, government and policymakers, doing that? Carol said, first, is an expanding problem driven by an unprecedented population change. It's only in the last 100 years we've begun adding people at a rate that's causing this incredible disruption of the larger ecosystem. If you and I were having this discussion 100 years ago, 
there were 6 billion fewer people on this planet. It took us the better part of our total existence of the species, 300,000 years before we hit the 1 billion mark. But in 100 years, we've added 6 billion people, and we'll add another 4 or 5 billion before the end of the century. Second, governments and society by and large are governed by inertia. We don't change and adapt and evolve very quickly. We're barely cognizant as a global society that the world we're living in today is fundamentally different than the world our species has ever lived in. Asked, how would you describe the general attitude of the U.S. government toward the threat of zoonotic diseases? Carol said, it's not just the U.S. government, but governments at large and the private sector. We don't invest in risk. Talking about zoonotic diseases is different than talking about tuberculosis or malaria. Those are tangible. They are clear and present problems. Zoonotic diseases are an emerging problem, but we as a society don't invest in things that are not kicking our door down. When asked, well, the coronavirus is kicking our door down now, don't you think? He said, yes, it's got everyone's attention. But this coronavirus will fall off the headlines, and when it does, you will see a contraction in the kind of investment that are made in it. We have war budgets and the no monies during peacetime. So part of the challenge, it's a social engineering exercise, is getting lawmakers and investors to invest in risk. All right, we've got about four minutes left in the program, so we're going to jump ship and talking about coronavirus and mention something else that's of note, the, the fact that they had primaries in Illinois and Florida tonight, and apparently Joe Biden thumped Bernie Sanders. I think it's fair to say at this point that the Sanders campaign is, uh, is, is not going to succeed. People like Bernie Sanders. I like Bernie Sanders. If I was going to pick one of the candidates to be my next-door neighbor, I'd want it to be Uncle Bernie. But in spite of the fact that Sanders is noted for being able to mobilize the youth, when it came to Florida, the youth apparently stayed home. And Joe Biden thumped Senator Sanders by virtue of the turnouts among those over 65 moderates and black people. When it comes to campaign 2020, the black population is going to have a lot to say about who gets elected president. And if it is Joe Biden and Barack Obama comes out to, uh, to campaign for him, there's a possibility that Biden might take North Carolina. He might take Florida. And you know what? If he does both of those, then we won't have a guy in the White House that says things like, it's a very contagious virus. It's incredible, but it's something we have tremendous control of. And we won't have a president who will venture the guess pull out of thin air that this whole thing might last until August, causing the stock market to have the greatest crash in its history, and eat up all of these so-called gains that have been made on Trump's watch in the space of hours, because that's how smart he is. Author J.G. Ballard once said, the President of the United States bears about as much relationship to the real business of running America as does Colonel Sanders to the business of frying chicken. All right, final item today, and I can't remember that we did this in the program before, neither can Mr. McMillan. If we did, fine, it's worth doing again since we're talking about the stock market. Physicist Niels Bohr supposedly once said, prediction is difficult, especially about the future. Article in New Scientist notes that when it comes to making predictions about stocks, stock prices, so you can invest, many assume that those who make a lot of money by investing in stocks must be very clever. So the Financial Times, a television show in Norway, tested this hypothesis. They challenged two stockbrokers to an investing contest. Their competition was an astrologer, two bloggers on the subject of beauty, and a herd of cows. The cows' choice of their stocks was determined by placing their deposits of the biological variety on a grid where each square was assigned to a different company. 
After three months, the stockbrokers achieved a return of 7.28%. Not bad. But darn it, the cows managed 7.26%. The winners, however, were the bloggers on beauty, whose portfolio went up more than 10%. No word on how the astrologer did. Asked what's an investor to do, they suggested, well, a bovine-assisted stock selection appears to be as good a strategy as any, but apparently only in a bull market. In a bear market, you should probably head to the woods, where it has long been established that bears do perform their bodily functions without benefit of toilet paper. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who by the time you actually hear this may have slipped out of the lockdown zone in the Bay Area. Just don't, don't tell anyone. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Not Douglas Everett on my medical license, I add. The truth is, Douglas Everett is just my radio name. My real name is Jonas Salk. (laughs) We'll see you next week from our undisclosed location under lockdown. Please, wash your hands and do what you can to stay six feet away from most people.